We hope you enjoy this podcast from Light Church Edithburg. To find out more about us, visit lightchurch.co. Hey, good morning, everyone. It doesn't feel like the morning. It feels like we're halfway through the day. Because uh, Steve and I live in Gawler, so we came for a nice little drive this morning, which was all good. So it actually started out really sunny, and by the time we got here, it was overcast. It was a bit strange. So I don't know what's happened to this 41 degrees day, but never mind. All good. We'll get some heat going here, hey? Awesome. Well, I hope you like the Word of God. Do you like the Word of God? Good. I I think if I have an addiction, it's an addiction to the Word of God. So lots of scripture today. Um... But you know what? We can read the scriptures and it doesn't necessarily change us unless we have the breath of God um, quickening our hearts to be receptive to the word. Amen? So before we look at the word, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are. And Lord God, when we look at the, the word that you have given us, and how this word is thousands of years old, and yet it is still relevant to us here today. That even though the stories and the events of the, the, the things in history that happened, that we read about in the word, happened in another part of the world, in a totally different culture than ours, and in a totally different era than ours, the, the life that is in that word is relevant to us as it was back then. And it is relevant to our nation in the, in the centuries to come. So, Lord, we ask you to breathe upon the word today and breathe upon us. And, Holy Spirit, we just take a moment to lay down all of our preconceived our ideas, all of our attitudes, our doctrines, anything and everything, and ask you, Holy Spirit, to just breathe afresh on us this morning and bring life to your word. And Father, I ask you to guard my mouth and guide my mouth and anything that comes out of my mouth that is not of you, Lord God, let it fall to the ground and break. Because Lord, all we want to hear is your word. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for keeping Jesus alive in our hearts and in our minds. Jesus, we know that you live. We are here because you were raised from the dead after you came to show us who the Father is, to restore us back into relationship with the triune God, with all of creation, with each other. And Lord, your story today is powerful to bring change to us, to bring change to our relationships, our lives, our communities, and to all of the earth. Holy Spirit, have your way here. In Jesus' name, amen. As we were driving here this morning, I was very conscious of the things that are going on in the world at the moment. There is a crisis of confidence in anything that we know to be normal. The events of the world, who knows? What's happened in America? And the influence of that on other nations and the influence of that on the Christian community as well. When we see all of the prophetic voices that came out from America saying that Trump's going to win, and that didn't happen. 
I don't know about you, but that can cause a, a, a crisis of faith that we put our confidence in the Word of God, yes. We put our confidence in the Holy Spirit, yes. But we are also influenced by men and women of God, aren't we? But you know what? We, we are all human beings. We have feet of clay. We can make mistakes. And at the end of the day, I don't actually think having a crisis of faith is a bad thing. So... I think sometimes God actually leads us into a place where we do have a crisis of faith. Because when we have a crisis of faith, it causes us to reconsider everything that we thought we knew and to go back to the Word of God and say, Holy Spirit, explain it to me. Get rid of all of the fluff, get rid of all of the culture and stuff like that, and let's just get back to the Word. And Holy Spirit, what are you saying? Who is Jesus? Who are you? Who am I because of you? How am I supposed to live? We can get very comfortable in our worlds and think, I know how to do this. I've got my world. I've got my, my family. I've got my relationships. I've got my job. I've got um, the, the, the things that I do, my way of life. That's all nice and comfortable. And sometimes it feels like God just takes everything and tips it upside down and gives it a good old shake. Does, does anyone know what that feels like? Mm. Well, last year, I started studying a master's um, in ancient languages and biblical studies because I want to know the Word of God more. And I thought I'm going to settle into a lovely year of just pushing into the Scriptures. And I found as I went into the year, I started to have one of those crises of faith where I started to see things that I'd never thought about before or I realized that that in my development of my my understanding of the Christian worldview, that I'd, I'd followed a particular path and, and had ignored a whole heap of other things. And all of a sudden, these things are getting brought onto my desk and I'm thinking, hey, I, I'm not so sure about this. And it caused me to question a whole heap of things. But that's good because that's what the Word of God is supposed to do. So this morning, that, that was the most beautiful communion message. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, I think there's a bit of the prodigal in all of us at times where we question, we challenge, and we're not sure. But we have confidence that our God actually knows where we're at. Our God knows what we go through because he has lived here amongst us as one of us. He understands. He gets us. It's okay. And so if you find yourself in the place where the Holy Spirit is shaking up things in your world, instead of worrying about that, just thank God for it and say, God, thank you. Thank you. I know you're trying to explain something to me. Speak to me in a way that I understand because I want to know the truth. I want to understand. That's okay. It's really okay. When we look at the New Testament and we think about with what we know of who wrote the books of the New Testament probably every single one of the authors at some time went through an amazing crisis of faith that would wipe anyone out without the strength of the Holy Spirit. It's okay. We're going to look at one of those people today, and that is Saul of Tarsus. So we're going to start with Acts chapter 9, and we're going to have a look at Saul's crisis of faith. So, from Acts chapter 9, 
I'm going to read from verse 1 down to 17. I'm sorry, I haven't got an overhead for that. Um, But we'll just listen to this bit and then we'll move on and there'll be plenty of other overheads there. Okay, here we go. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentile kings, sorry, to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went in and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a huge story. In the scriptures, when we know a story really well, we can skim over it and not actually stop and think about it because we know it. And the church knows the story of the Damascus Road. And even outside of the church, people talk about having a Damascus Road experience, which is where your worldview gets tipped upside down and you have to rethink things. So this story is well, well known. But we're going to just get inside this story and have a walk around and just see what actually happened to Saul. What, what was he confronted with? What, what was going through his mind as he had this experience? So we need to understand, first up, that Paul was a first century Jewish worshipper of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He thought he understood God. He thought he knew what he was looking for. And what he was looking for from God was something other than Jesus. So when Paul had his encounter with God on the road to Damascus, he had a revelation that was so great that as he preached about his revelation, it actually contributed to the downfall of the Roman Empire. That is massive. So something happened that changed his thinking 
that was even greater than the mighty Roman Empire. See, the Roman Empire was never defeated from the outside. It imploded. It disappeared because it wasn't strong enough to stand. And what was the Roman Empire fighting against? It was fighting against God. So let's have a look at Saul. Who is Saul? Well, Saul was from a city called Tarsus. Now, what's so interesting about Tarsus? Tarsus was a very educated place. See, before Tarsus became so great, there were two cities in the, in the Roman world that were the great cities for the philosophers, and that was Alexandria and Athens. But in Athens, when the Romans started to take power, the people in Athens didn't like what was happening, so they rebelled. And the Romans didn't take too kindly to insurrection, and so the philosophers from Athens, the bulk of them, fled to Tarsus to continue on their work where they would be safe. And so Saul grew up in this Hellenistic city, this Greek city that was strongly influenced by Greek philosophy and the Roman pantheon of gods. And so for Saul, he knew that there was one true God who was Yahweh, and that God was worshipped by Israel, and Israel were waiting for the promises of Abraham to be filled. So Saul lived in a culture where there was a clash of belief and a clash of understanding. Now, Israel had had a very turbulent history. When you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that they, there was never a, a grand old time in Israel. There were never the glory days in Israel. There was always something happening. So from the, the kingdom being established through Saul and then um, the man after God's own heart, King David, who brought about a unified nation, and that was to some degree a good time, but it was also a time of lots of warfare. And then after that, we had the security of King Solomon, which was the time of glory and wealth and all of those good things. But he left such instability that, that after uh, he passed on the kingdom to his son, the kingdom divided and the north of the, north of the kingdom actually collapsed eventually and was defeated by the Assyrians. And after that happened, then the southern kingdom was defeated by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and then, then the land of Israel was just laid waste. And then the people of, um, of, of the southern kingdom were taken off to Babylon in exile and on top of that, the temple for Yahweh in Jerusalem was destroyed. So after all of this effort of Abraham's promise and, and God leading the people out of Egypt and establishing the kingdom and all of the sacrifices, the building of the temple and everything, it all came to nothing, absolutely nothing. And then after some time, Babylon was defeated by the king of Persia. And the king of Persia released the people of Israel to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild a temple to Yahweh there. That sounds great. There were two problems with that. One of them was that it wasn't actually their own land. It was Persian land. It was a Persian province and they had permission to tend that province, but it wasn't Israel. And the second problem with that was only about 10% of the people actually returned back to Israel. And so the promise that was there to Abraham was still not fulfilled. Let's just have a quick look at that promise. It was Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. It says this, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your land, 
your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God promised them land. I will make you into a great nation. They weren't a nation anymore. They were people of Persia. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. They didn't have the capacity to blow the fuzz off a peanut, let alone bless anyone. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was such a far cry from the situation they found themselves in. And so... After that, they rebuilt the temple, but then there was another invasion. The Greeks came and defeated the Persians, and so now the land of Israel was no longer under Persian control. Now it's under Greek control. And the Greeks had this idea under Alexander the Great of everywhere that Alexander the Great conquered, it became a Greek place. And so all of the architecture was Greek, the thinking was Greek, the worship of the gods was Greek, everything was Greek, the way of life was so Greek and so different. And the Jews didn't take kindly to that, so they rebelled against that. And guess what happened? More war, more slaughter, more conflicts, more um, difficulties and challenges. And so during that time, there were all sorts of tensions in the Promised Land. So some followed the, the leading of the ruling Greeks, and they compromised the worship of Yahweh, they compromised the temple, and these people are recognized in the gospel as the Sadducees. And other people fought with their lives to rid the land from the Greeks. And then when the Roman Empire came along and defeated the Greeks, things didn't improve. So the faithful remnant turned to the scriptures to hold on to their loyalty to Yahweh, and those people, we see them in the scriptures, they became the Pharisees. And so there were these different groups in Israel who were saying, we think we know how to deal with this. We think we know who God is. We think we know how God is working. And we think that we have, we have the best way to resolve these situations. All of these people were worshippers of Yahweh to some degree. So then all of them, throughout all of this this conflict and all of this chaos, they all held on to the hope that was based on the prophetic voice of God through Ezekiel and through the other prophets. But they saw these scriptures differently. So there were basically two main ideas of what people were looking for. See, when we talk about Jesus now, we talk from a Western perspective after the, uh, the, the cultural changes that have happened in the developed Western world, and we view Jesus through those lenses. But we've got to go back and see what did it look like for the readers of this stuff. So let's have a look at some of the scriptures they were holding on to. There was in Ezekiel chapter 36, there was the promised pouring out of the Spirit of God. So from verse 24 to 28... This is, this is what God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel during the time of the exile. God says this, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and will bring you into your own land. There's that promise of land again. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. But look at this. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Just have a think about that. You will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. God said he would put his own spirit in the people. That's mind-blowing. That's absolutely revolutionary. God's saying that this great, almighty, created God would put his own spirit inside the people. Now, these are people who revere God so much they won't even speak his name. That's extraordinary. How do you process that? I don't know. And then we get to Ezekiel 37, which is about the resurrection of Israel as a nation. And if we look at verses 11 to 14, it says this, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So this is the vision of the valley of dry bones. So you might have read that story again. It's, it's a, a fairly well-known story in the scriptures where the prophet Ezekiel sees in a vision a valley of dry bones and, and he doesn't know what this means and the Spirit of God explains it. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Look how they say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished and we are cut off. Keep in mind this happened during the time of exile when the, the people of Israel were in Babylon, away from their land, and their temple is destroyed. So God says, therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the Lord God says. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them, my people, and lead you into the land of Israel. You will know that I am the Lord, my people. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. You know, this is the beginning of people having hope for resurrection. This is the first time in the scriptures that concept of resurrected life comes in. Again, revolutionary. God is saying you're in exile because you worshipped other gods. But I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to bring you back from exile, bring you back to your land. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And on top of that, you will have resurrection life. You will live. You will not die. Now, see, we, we're familiar with these things because we understand Christianity through the eyes of that. When we hear about Christ, we hear about Christ crucified. That is how we came to know about Christ. These people had no idea at all about this. Neither did Saul of Tarsus. So, Saul of Tarsus, he was educated by the best. Born in Tarsus, great seat of learning, knew about the philosophies of Greece. He was schooled under Gamaliel in Jerusalem, great uh, rabbi, one of the most respected rabbis in Jewish history. Paul was zealous. He was a promising student of the law of Moses, totally devoted to faithfulness to Yahweh and violently opposed to those who he believed were compromising the purity of observing the law. So when he was the one who was selected to go and quell the heretical sect 
of the followers of this crucified troublemaker from Galilee, Saul of Tarsus probably thought he was acting in devoted zeal for his God. Didn't know Jesus, but he was passionate for Yahweh. So, with visions of a faithful remnant throughout all of history who defended the honor of Yahweh, throughout all of history, Saul of Tarsus sets off to Damascus and he's probably thinking, here I am. There was Moses, there was David, there was Elijah, and now God has chosen me to be his vessel to quell this heretical nonsense about a crucified Jewish troublemaker from Galilee. Someone else who is trying to lead us away from true worship of Yahweh. And then what happens? He encounters the divine presence of God. Says this, as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him and he fell to the ground. What would that feel like? You're on your way thinking you are serving God and you have this amazing supernatural encounter. As he's going to Damascus, he's full of fervor. He's probably praying. He's probably declaring his love and his zeal for his God. And then this glorious light from heaven flashes around him to the point he falls to the ground. What's he thinking? He's probably thinking, God, you see my heart. You see my passion for your word. You see my devotion to you where I'm prepared to fight those who fight against you. And he's probably thinking, this is my moment. I'm being called by God. I'm the new prophet, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Saul. We haven't had a prophet, Saul. Mm, I like it. Here is his reward from God. Now, Saul at this point in time, he's not ashamed of his conduct at all. Saul doesn't think of himself as a sinner who needs to be saved. In fact, he wrote later on that as far as the law of Moses was concerned, he had a clear conscience. So that doesn't mean that he didn't sin. He's not saying that. But the law of Moses provided a way for if you do sin, you can be made right with God again through the sacrifices that were offered through the temple. And so Saul, okay, he sinned. Everyone sins. But he righteously obeyed the law and he dutifully offered his sacrifices with a pure heart to the God of Israel in the temple. So he has a clean conscience. He doesn't think he needs to be saved. So he's not looking for salvation So, in fear and trembling, in reverential awe of Yahweh, in this amazing moment, he piously says, Who are you, Lord? Imagine his shock when the reply from this heavenly presence, this heavenly presence is, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. Now, how is he supposed to process this? This crucified Galilean troublemaker is actually Yahweh? How does that work? So, Yahweh, 
heard the cries of the people in Egypt when they were in bondage and in slavery, and Yahweh responded by sending Moses to bring the people out of Egypt and gave them the law. That's fantastic. And the Israelites had been praying for God to come and rescue them from the hands of the Romans, and so God intervenes and comes and does something about it in the form of a Galilean who gets crucified how can that possibly be? Then there's his allegedly miraculous resurrected life. And his followers claimed at the Feast of Pentecost that they had seen this resurrected Jesus and they claimed that they had received the outpouring of the Spirit. Hang on a sec, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, I will put my Spirit in you. That's what they said at Pentecost. There will be resurrected life, and Jesus is resurrected. Hang on, that's in Ezekiel 37. How is Paul supposed to understand this? This is going to take some thought. So he goes into Damascus, blind, and someone turns up at the house he's staying at and says, God has sent me to you so that you might receive the Spirit. And then he himself is filled with the Spirit, Hey, that's not what he was expecting. He has encountered this resurrected Jesus who has now filled him with the Spirit. That is what Ezekiel was talking about, but it wasn't what Paul was looking for. So from then on, Saul preaches about the righteousness that comes through hope in the resurrected Christ. And he preaches of the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ, that just as Christ was resurrected, our trust in the grace and peace that comes, uh, our grace and peace with God that comes through Christ, that gives us hope for our own future resurrection. This is what Paul starts to preach. And then this hope is sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, who is given to indwell believers to manifest the reconciliation of God and humanity to anyone who believes and to assure us of eternal life in the kingdom of God, with God and all those who put their confidence in the resurrected Christ. You know, it's a good thing he didn't go back to Jerusalem. It actually took him three years to go back to Jerusalem after he had this resurrection. And the, the, the Sanhedrin who sent Saul were probably wondering, what, whatever happened to that zealous young rabbi in training, Saul of Tarsus. We sent him off to Damascus and he just disappeared off the face of the earth. Three years later, he comes back, he tries to find the disciples and they don't want to have anything to do with him because they've heard about Saul of Tarsus. But Barnabas convinces them it's all right, he's legit. And so then Saul spends two weeks staying with Peter, just drinking in the stories of Jesus and hearing about how Jesus talked about the crucified life, about anyone who wants to follow Jesus, take up your cross and die daily, that your life as a worshiper of God is not about you living for yourself, acquiring what you want for yourself, convincing yourself of your own self-righteousness. It's about laying down your life and loving God and loving each other and taking care of creation. This isn't actually about you're not allowed to have pork sausages at your barbecue. This isn't about don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. This isn't about 
if you're going for a, a walk on the Sabbath, you need to, on the day before, go and put something halfway on your journey so that you only do a Sabbath day walk before you stop and have a little rest, and then you can have another Sabbath day walk, and then you won't offend God. It's, it's, this isn't about that. This is nothing to do with the God that Saul thought he was worshipping. This is the God who left heaven and came to earth to be crucified in the most shameful, embarrassing death. Do you know the Romans wouldn't even use the word crucifixion? They wouldn't use the word the cross because it was just such a disgraceful, contemptible thing. But God humbled himself to come and shatter people's wrong ideas about who he was. And God himself inflicted a crisis of faith on the people of Israel who thought they had it all sorted out. If you are going through a crisis of faith and you pick up that big stick and you start beating yourself and say, I should know better, I'm a Christian. You know what? Maybe God has led you into a place where you will actually seek him and say, God, I'm messed up. Who are you? Just as Saul of Tarsus said, who are you, Lord? And the answer came back was not what he expected. Maybe God is leading you into a crisis of faith so that you will ask the questions. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you have questions that you can't answer, good. That probably means you're a theologian. After studying theology, I've come to the conclusion that good theology will always lead you to the place where you say, I don't know. Because God knows. And if we have all of the answers, we have no need for God. God is a mystery. We don't actually need to come up with all the answers. But what do we need to know? There are things that we need to know about Jesus. Let's have a look at these. This comes from the Word of God. The first one is in Acts chapter 2, verse 32 to 33. First thing we need to know about Jesus. He is the one who is resurrected from the dead. It says this, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. If you've got things going in your head that you're saying, I can't understand this, just know this, Jesus rose from the dead. That's a good start. What about this one? Jesus is the one whose resurrection gives us hope for our own resurrection to life in the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, it says, For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Because Jesus rose, so do we. Third one, 
Who is Jesus? He is the one who pours out his spirit as an assurance of the hope we have. In Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14, it says, In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So when we sing, it's your breath in my lungs, so I pour out your praise. The only reason you can do that is because God has put his spirit in you. And you can say, but I feel like sin on a stick, but it's your breath in my lungs, so I pour out my praise. You can feel like, I don't know where I am with God. Okay, but it's your breath in my lungs, so I pour out my praise, pour out your praise. I'm not proud of something I've done. I'm not proud of this conflict I'm in with someone. But it's your breath in my lungs, so I pour out your praise. The life that we live here day to day is the life that we live here day to day. But our life with Jesus, knowing that he was resurrected and we likewise will be resurrected, And knowing that he has put his spirit in us, that is true life. That is eternal. Our circumstances, our troubles, our worries, our fears, our conflicts, those are temporary. If a band could come back, that would be awesome. Thank you. What else do we need to know about Jesus? He is no less than the creator of the universe, the one with all power, wisdom, knowledge, might, and glory. In Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago, God spoke to the ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. What is your relationship with God? It's quite simple. He's the creator. You are his masterpiece. We don't have to tell God what he should do with our lives. We just thank God for our lives and thank him for being God. Let him deal with the rest. And the last one, he is the one who is worthy to be worshipped as no one else is worthy. Paul wrote this in Romans. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who went through a crisis of faith, who had to undo everything he thought he knew about Yahweh, who had to go against the tide, who had to go and check his revelation with, with the disciples and see, is, is this Jesus that I know? Is this the same Jesus that you know? And they said, yes, it is. This is our Jesus. And his conclusion, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Certainly not the Pharisees. Who has been his counsellor? Certainly not the priests. And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. With Saul's crisis of faith, God responded to his passion and his fervor by taking him through a crisis of faith, giving him the opportunity to have his theology and his whole worldview completely shattered and so Christ could be revealed to him. 
and the revelation that Paul had, he took around to the Gentile world. And as the church was strengthened with the understanding of a law-free gospel that worshipped the one true God, the creator of the universe, the Roman Empire imploded and Christ was exalted. 2,000 years later, here we are, singing, it's your breath in my lungs, so I pour out my praise. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. We hear lots of stuff about who Jesus is. What we really need to listen to is what does the Bible say about who Jesus is? The God that we worship is the God who left heaven to come to earth because he hears the cry of our hearts. That cry is not necessarily, I'm so ashamed of myself, I need a savior. It's not necessarily that. The cry can be just, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. Life is so confusing. God, if you are real, show me. And God will meet you where you're at. How he does it is his business. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what's going on in your life. But God does. And if you need a fresh revelation of Jesus, just ask God and he will show you. The two things God promised, resurrection life, eternal life for those who believe. Believe what? Believe that that God raised Christ from the dead and that he is our hope. He is our future. He is the one who brings us back into relationship with the Father. He is the one who restores our life to how God intended it to be. That's it. He does the work. And secondly, God's desire is to put his spirit in you and he will lead you into all righteousness. You can't do this yourself. God doesn't want you or need you to do it yourself. It is the work of the Holy Spirit as you yield your life to God. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the assurance that we have in Christ. I thank you so much, Lord God, for the resurrection that you promised as we yield our lives to you, knowing that Christ died for us and that as he was resurrected, when we trust in Christ's righteousness, not our own, that we also receive that gift from you. And Lord, I just pray for folks here who need that assurance or for people that they're praying for and they love, that that those people will have that assurance as well. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are just so ready and eager to restore life to, to your people by filling people afresh. Lord God, fill our hearts, fill our lives, and help us to lay down all of the things that we think that we have to do 
because it's all of your work. Jesus, we just want that fresh revelation from you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Just while I'm looking around, just keep your eyes closed for a minute. If you know that, that you have had a wrong perception of Jesus and you've just learned something about who Jesus is and about his desire to bring resurrection life to you, I just want you to pop your hand up for me so I can pray for you. I'm not going to ask anyone to come to the front or do anything, but is there anyone here and you've, you, you're just wanting some prayer for that revelation? Beautiful. Amen. And secondly, we can all use a fresh infilling of the Spirit, can't we? I don't know about you. I just need the Holy Spirit in my life. Can we perhaps just worship for a minute and just ask the Holy Spirit to flood us again, fill us again, because it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about what we can do. Amen. Bless you.